0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest casting either side of the breach. With the arrival of Governor General Marlowe in Malatho, things began to change. In tonight's story, he begins to exert his influence on the city's sizable mercenary population. But the mercenaries of Malatho are not to be trifled with. I hope you enjoy part one of Horizon's End. Right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by the Catalan Corps, the only democratic mercenary outfit in Malifaux. Each member of the Corps gets one vote, so when you hire us, you can be sure our fighters are committed to the mission. Whether you want a train robbed, an enemy murdered, or a convoy defended, the Catalan Corps is clearly the best choice. Horizon's End by Justin Gibbs Von Schill made his way out the city gate and up the road toward the breach. His boots splashed in the remnants of a recent rainfall, rippling puddles that reflected Malifaux's twin moons. Marching behind him were two dozen fully armed and armored Freikorpsmen, their faces hidden behind gas masks. Bandoliers of stick-like grenades were strapped to their chests, and two even carried bulky flamethrowers of questionable legality. It was more of a show than Von Schill normally put on when meeting with a potential client, but tonight was no ordinary night, and Von Schill was expecting trouble. Before reaching Malifaux station and the breach, Von Schill turned to his right, detouring toward the Governor-General's mansion. The building was built to be imposing, but years of living in Malafo had inured Von Schill to the site. He was more concerned with why the new Governor-General had contacted him. In his estimation, People as powerful as Marlowe didn't call on mercenaries unless they needed a very particular brand of deniability and lethality. By showing up in such a public manner, Von Schull knew that he was likely sabotaging whatever offer Marlowe wanted to make to him. The Guild and the Fry had been in an uneasy standstill ever since he told the former Governor-General just where he could shove it six years earlier. He had left the Guild and taken a good number of its best generals, soldiers and support staff with him when he formed the Fry along with a not insignificant amount of weaponry and ammunition, and that wound had never quite healed. The new Governor-General might not hold a grudge, but all the drama with Ramos had made it clear that Marlow was the sort of man who was trying to clean up loose ends, and that made von Schill wary. Better to go in with too many troops and ruin a deal than with too few and wind up in a prison in Vienna. He reached up to knock on the door and felt a faint ache of pain. His pneumatic arm was still new, and though his body had mostly adjusted to it, it still caused him pain on wet nights such as this. The sound of his metal hand on the door echoed through the mansion. There was a warm breeze as the door opened, revealing armed guards and a servant. The goat guardsmen and the Freikorpsmen eyed each other tensely, fingers absently brushing against holsters. Von Schill noted that the guardsmen were more heavily armoured than what would be considered typical, with armoured vests beneath their coats and clockwork pistols on their hips. He counted no less than four high-powered shotguns at a glance, and one of the women was even armed with some sort of experimental rifle that he'd never seen before. It looked like the sort of thing Hoffman might build. The guardsmen were prepared for a fight, but it was the preparation of soldiers. There was no attempt to prominently display their weapons, no sense of children being allowed to play with their father's guns. These were trained soldiers who were focused on their duties. Von Schill's estimation of Franco Marlowe rose very slightly. The tension was palpable, and after a moment von Schill sighed. Stand watch outside, he ordered. Delta Patton, Iron Swan contingencies. The Freikorps saluted and spread out, moving away from the doorway. The dispersal diffused the situation enough for the guardsmen to relax somewhat, and after a moment, the servant stepped aside and bowed, allowing von Schill to enter. Von Schill had expected to be shown to the crown room. It was where Kitchener had liked to hold his meetings old vaulted ceilings, ancient bookshelves, and roaring fireplaces. He was somewhat surprised, then, to be shown into a relatively normal office. Electric lights illuminated a horseshoe-shaped desk that was surrounded by a sunburst of bookshelves. He cast a quick glance at the nearest titles, and noted with approval that they all seemed to be related to bureaucratic and magical matters. There was not a single piece of non-fiction or classical literature on the entire shelf. The Governor-General was behind his desk, and he stood and smiled as the mercenary approached. Von Schill, what a pleasure to meet you in person. I have heard good things. Marlow was wiry and compact, probably no more than a decade older than Von Schill himself. He was dressed in a formal suit, but he wore it like armor. It was neat and pristine, but he seemed comfortable, like a man for whom neatness was simply a way of life rather than a burden of office. Von Schill nodded his greeting. Governor General, pleased to finally meet you. Marlow's lips curved upward in a faint imitation of a smile. Come, we have much to discuss. He motioned to the seat opposite him. I hope your journey here was pleasant. We've been working quite hard to make the city safer. Von Schull seated himself and leaned forward, folding his hands together on the desk. In his experience, it tended to put people off guard when he adopted such an aggressive posture early in the negotiation. Yes, I've seen all that you've been accomplishing. Mahler didn't even seem to notice. You don't sound as if you approve. I don't, he bluntly admitted. I think you're doing a better job than Kitchener with running the city, but it's still a damn mess. Mahler's eyebrows arched upward in curiosity. I see you're not a man who minces words. Tell me, Von Schill, how would you have handled things differently? I am curious to hear how a veteran tactician would have approached this situation. Von Schill barked out a laugh. Are you now? He pulled a cigar from his pocket and tapped it against the desk. That's going to run you a pretty hefty consulting fee. The Governor General leaned back in his chair and waved the concern away. But I see it, Von Schill started, pausing only to light his cigar, take a pull from it, and exhale a cloud of smoke into the air. The biggest problem the Guild's got is the quarantine zone. You hold up in downtown, so focused on the soul stones up north that you've allowed the rest of the city to rot around you. Kitchener had the right idea when he tried to bulldoze the whole mess to the ground, but as usual, his execution was piss poor. You would have marched in troops. It was less of a question and more of a statement. He nodded. Kitchener tried to make it a big production, bulldozing the barricade with the armored landship. You should have just sent in troops, eliminated resistance where he found it, and taking it back one district at a time. Put up temporary fortifications like they did during the first push into the city after the breach reopened, but leave the current barricades intact until it's secure. Tearing them down at the start just leaves you without a defensible fortification at your back. Marlow considered the advice for a moment. And how would you deal with the ghosts of Stranger's Keep, the necromantic squatters of the Barrows? The mercenaries camped out in Powderburg, Funchill smirked as he referenced his own troops. Last I checked, you've got an entire division of death marshals. Lady Justice is a damn good woman, but she runs her people like skirmishers when you frankly need an army. Marlowe sat up and smiled, as if pleased at Von Schill's conclusions. You run a finely oiled organization. Clean. Straightforward. Orderly. These are all things I can respect. He regarded the grizzled mercenary for a long moment. Even so, The Freikorps is essentially a private army operating within the bounds of Malifaux City, for hire by anyone with enough coin to pay your fees. That poses a problem for me. Would you abide a squad of your own men taking side contracts and doing whatever they wished? Von Schill's eyes narrowed. He wasn't entirely certain where Marlow was leading the conversation, and he didn't like not knowing. My troops, men and women alike, either work for me or they don't. They are free to leave at any time if they get wind of a better opportunity. With a nod, Marlow continued. That is how I prefer things as well. Ambiguity is for lesser men. Though, in my case, you either live in my city or you don't. Those who choose to live in my city must abide by certain rules. Von Schill puffed on his cigar. The Freikorps break no laws, Marlow. We've got special dispensation for our heavy weaponry. I don't recall seeing any special permission to set up an armored compound in the quarantine zone. Marlowe's tone made his words feel conversational. But there was a threat in them nevertheless, like a buried landmine. Manchel just shrugged his shoulders. Nobody's told us to leave? Marlowe's reply was a thin smile. Nevertheless, even if you are breaking no laws at the moment, the legal code is always changing. He reached into his desk, withdrew a piece of paper, and slid it across the table toward Von Schill. It was an official guild decree. Von Schill looked at it closely, his eyes widening as he realized what it was. You can't be serious. It was more statement than question, but Marlowe only shrugged. In a very short time, all mercenary work will be illegal in Malafo. That includes the Fry Corps. Von Schill snorted and shook his head in disbelief. This is an overreach, Marlow. You don't have the manpower to handle everything that crops up in this city. The Guild Guard is a military organization, no matter how much they play at being constables. That is true, Marlow smiled condescendingly. But luckily for us, I have a solution to the manpower problem. Von Schill met the man's eyes. Marlow smiled and suddenly... Von Schill realized what the Governor General intended, why they were even speaking in the first place. He broke into a laugh. You can't be serious. Why not? You're experienced and disciplined. You run a tight ship, and you're familiar with the Guild's operating procedures. Marlow leaned forward and frowned as he placed his hands on the desk, palms down, and splayed his fingers wide. We both know that the Guild Guard is rife with corruption, nepotism, and incompetence. My predecessor liked it that way. He believed the disorder was power. Play one man against another and neither can turn on you. He looked back up. I believe as you do. True power is not snatched from a pile of ashes, but built, brick by brick, through order, discipline, and human willpower. Furthermore, you are willing to tell me when you believe that I am wrong. It was von Schill's turn to lean back in his chair, his cigar twirling thoughtfully between steel fingers. Marlow watched him for a moment. "'How about it?' "'Come work for me, and I will place you in charge of the guild guard.' Von Schill's fleshy fingers drummed on the arm of his chair. "'And the rest of the corps?' "'They would, of course, be welcome in the guard. Every one of them, should they be willing to join.' Marlow allowed a moment of exasperation to show through his carefully prepared mask. "'The guard is beyond simply needing a new leader.' We need new blood at every level. You and your men could reshape the organization as you see fit. Purge the corruption and incompetence. Instill your own discipline. Throw out the book and write your own. Von Schill was quiet for a long time. The offer was tempting in and of itself. And with mercenary work outlawed, he wasn't sure what that meant for the Freikorps. Corps. His problems with the guild had always been with Governor General Kitchener. But now that he was gone and Marlow was in charge... He could actually see himself wearing the red and gray. This could start a war, he finally said. Some of the city's best fighters are mercenaries, and they're going to be right pissed when you take their livelihood away from them. The Victorias alone could prove to be more than the Guild could handle, and that's before they start banding together with other groups to fight against you. You're taking an awful risk. Marlow nodded. I am. Malifaux is changing. Civilization cannot be stopped. And in time, it will reach everywhere, even here. You can either be part of the solution, or part of the problem. Wansho laughed and gestured at the man with his cigar. There it is. I was wondering when the Kitchener in you would come out. He sat up and tapped his cigar, sending Ash cascading down onto Malo's decree. I've been through many battles and many sieges. The best laid plans of men like you always come crashing down against the reality of the battlefield. Your imaginations are the product of a time on earth. Of a place where people think they can tie up the world in strings and make it all nice and neat. Malafort is different. He stood, took one more pull from his cigar, and then jabbed it down against Marlow's desk, rubbing it out against the polished wood. I won't be your errand boy, and I don't like your posturing. You may be an intelligent man, but this is going to turn Malifaux into a battlefield rivaling anything you've seen on Earth, and nobody can match the Freikoyd in a fight. Marlow simply glared. The very fact that you believe you can threaten me, threaten the Guild, proves that things have gone too far. He stood as well, and his chair scraped loudly against the floor. You and your mercenaries have been given too much slack. Say what you want of war. When the fires die down, order is always restored. The two men were silent for a moment. Von Schill nodded and turned to leave. As he reached the door, Marlow called out to him. I did not expect you to immediately accept. You have one week to think things over and give me a final answer. Von Schill turned back to the man. Don't hold your breath. With that... He exited the room, his mind racing with preparations. The ethervox crackled and popped, but the Governor General's voice still filled the small room. Malifaux is a frontier, and like any frontier it has drawn countless hardworking men and women who wish for nothing more than to forge a new life. Unfortunately it has also drawn those who are running, running from their past running from the law, and even running from themselves. Frontiers exist at the margins of every society. And in those margins, the shadows make their home. In recent years, we have seen an increase in lawlessness, robbery, and obscenity in our fair city. Many of the people I've spoken to on the street have told me that they do not feel safe walking the streets. Many of them do not even feel safe in their homes. At that, Parker Barrow momentarily stopped cleaning his gun to glance at the ethervox. The voice continued. "'As your new Governor-General, it falls to me, Franco Marlowe, to put an end to this lawlessness and to restore peace to our city. Every horizon ends somewhere. Every shadow is invariably pushed back by the light. Progress tirelessly marches onwards, and every frontier is just the seeding ground of a civilized society.' Parker spun the chamber of his six-shooter before slamming it home and taking aim down the sights. A thin, weedy man in a rumpled suit stared back at him, his eyes wide with panic. Do you need to test the sights on me? Parker shrugged and lowered his pistol. Calm down. If I wanted to shoot you, I'd shoot you. He hooked his head toward the ethervox. I don't like the sound of this new Governor General. Seems like he's finally settled into place and started rolling things forward. Just another guild politician, Doc Mitchell replied, pushing his glasses up on his nose. He probably just enjoys the sound of his own voice. Parker shook his head. No, listen. The words are polished. Every horizon ends somewhere. The kind of thing a dolled-up windbag on a podium would think up to turn heads. But listen to his voice. It's flat. Pragmatic. He wrote this speech and practiced it a dozen times. Doc Mitchell sighed and started digging around in his bag for a bottle of whiskey. So? So, Parker said as he started cleaning his second pistol. It means that he's careful. Careful with his words probably careful with his actions. He doesn't see this as being all about himself. Parker turned the ethervox up, and the Governor General's voice droned on. Our citizens cannot be expected to police themselves. Law and order must exist for everyone, not only those who can afford it. To this end, from this day forward, the Guild will no longer post public bounties for wanted criminals. Parker sat up in his chair, his pistol suddenly forgotten. "'Furthermore, anyone posting or accepting their own bounties will be tried in a court of law, and if found guilty, hung as contract killers.'" Doc Mitchell laughed as he unscrewed the cap from the only alcoholic thing he found in his bag, a bottle of cough syrup. "'And you were worried. It sounds like good news for you.'" Parker sighed and shook his head. "'No. This will only make things worse.'" I would think that a man with a bounty on his head would be happy to have it lifted. Doc Mitchell raised a skeptical eyebrow before throwing back his head and taking a long swig from the cough syrup. When he lowered it, he winced at the taste. Parker was barely paying attention. McGill's not going to just leave us alone out here. This doesn't mean fewer people hunting us. It just means that instead of unprepared mercenaries and people chasing a payday coming after us, We're gonna have to deal with armed forces. The guild's gonna have to recruit hard to keep the peace. And this guy, Pocket pointed his pistol at the ethervox, he's not gonna hire off the streets. He's gonna bring in people with military training. People who don't care about the money so much as wiping out lawlessness. Those people, those people are dangerous. Not to mention the increased competition. Spots were already starting to form in front of Mitchell's eyes. Competition? Parker flashed him a cruel smile. How do you think all those mercenaries and bounty hunters are going to make a living now? Halt! The guardsman shouted. This area is off limits to civilians on order of the guild. Leviticus the let out a sigh. He had wanted to move quietly through the darkened streets, but Alice had insisted on singing as they walked. "'There usually aren't patrols in the quarantine zone,' Leviticus mused aloud. "'Things must be worse than Von Schull said. "'All of Malafau is under the rightful authority of the Guild, now on the ground.' The guardsman's entire patrol were pointing their pistols right at him, waiting for him to follow their command. Leviticus took a measure of the situation. Only ten men. He could handle more, of course, but he was already running late to the meeting. It was curious, though. The guardsmen seemed better armed than usual. He could usually spot a refurbished weapon at a glance, but the equipment of these men and women seemed brand new. The crack of a gun split the air, and the lead guardsman's head exploded into a fine red mist. Headshot! Alice shouted as she pumped her arm into the air. The return volley was deafening, but Alice was faster, and she dived around the corner of the closest building as its wall exploded into a shower of brick and concrete. The bullets riddled Edgar's body, jerking him around like a puppet with its strings being yanked in every direction. Hey Levy, is this really the time to be dancing? Alice shouted as she leaned out from behind the corner and snapped off three more shots. Two guards staggered and fell as the rest ducked for cover of their own. Leviticus sighed as he looked down at his ruined and dying body. I told you not to call me that. He grabbed a handful of soul stones from his pocket and drew upon their power, allowing the energy to flow through him and heal his wounds. It was a waste of perfectly good energy, but he had been trying to avoid death as much as possible lately. Every time he died, his magic lashed outward, seeping the life from everything around him. Worse yet... Every time he clawed his way back from death, a bit more of his body refused to return fully to life. Until he found a way to reverse the steadily creeping decomposition, some sacrifices had to be made. Pushing such thoughts out of his mind, he gestured toward the nearest of the guardsmen. Enough of this foolishness! With a thought, he sent the universe on its way, allowing the full weight of entropy to wash over them. Their bodies began to unmake themselves, disintegrating into a black ash as they stared down at their disappearing limbs in horror. Halfway through their deaths, Leviticus made a curt gesture with his hand, drawing upon far darker magic still. There was still enough time for one of the guardsmen to utter a choked scream as what was left of their bodies began to twitch and warp. Limbs snapped and twisted into obscene, unnatural angles as their weapons were torn apart and incorporated into their new, hideous bodies. Hands and feet both gripped the ground, heads turned upside down or split open to reveal tendrils of grey meat, and bloated tongues hung from distorted mouths. Leviticus snapped his fingers and pointed at the remaining guardsmen. Kindly finish them off. Their twisted abominations fell upon their fallen comrades in a gruesome mockery of combat. One guardsman raised her rifle and shot an abomination in the head, only to have the rest of the thing jump on her and tear at her throat with its teeth. She went down with a gurgle and a spurt of blood before her body too began to ripple and change, her backbone snapping free of her ribs as it twisted around like a flaying whip. The second guardman got off a few shots more, actually killing her attacker as her rifle sent chunks of twisted meat exploding from the abomination's back. The newest monstrosity, however, snapped its backbone at her like a whip, gouging her eye and dropping her to the ground with a spray of blood and a shriek of pain. As the guards fell, Leviticus continued working his spell, turning each casualty into another abomination. Soon there was nothing left of the patrol except a writhing pile of twisted limbs and twitching tendrils. Alice came out from behind the building and wrinkled her nose at the sight of it. That is so icky. Leviticus raised an eyebrow. Usually you don't mind my abominations. Alice laughed. Oh, it's not that. I just don't like seeing them in guild uniform. The Vedicus chuckled. Fair enough. It's worrying to see that the guild is taken to patrolling the quarantine zone, though. It makes me glad that we decided to attend this gathering. Parker and his gang had to approach the city from the eastern edge and scale the tall stone wall while the patrolling guard wasn't watching. It was hard work, and by the time they'd gotten close to the Freikorps compound, their hands and backs were already aching. Parker didn't mind. The pain would keep them alert, and in the quarantine zone, that was a good thing. Parker was more than confident in his abilities to handle any threats that may arise. The Woku raiders that accompanied him flitted across the rooftops of the district's squat blocky buildings while Mad Dog kept pace behind him. A fine dust seemed to cover everything, and their bandanas were raised to keep them from breathing in too much of it. As they reached the Freikorps compound, Parker became aware of people watching them. He caught the glint of a scope in one window, a hand signal from a rooftop, armored silhouettes stepping back into darkened alleys. The Freikorps seemed to have soldiers everywhere. Parker thought he had a good-sized bandit gang, but the Freikorps were putting him to shame. Other than being the largest building in the district, the Freikor compound blended in well enough with the rest of the blocky structures in Powderberg. Parker knew that its walls were armored, and that there were probably more hidden traps and security measures than he cared to guess at. By the time they'd reached the front gates... He was already trying to work out just how he had robbed the place. A pair of armoured freikorpsmen pushed the gate open. One nodded to Parker. I'll show you to the main hall. You're the last to arrive. On time, Mad Dog spat. It's just another way to say predictable. As the Barrows gang closed ranks, the Woku Raiders descended gracefully to the ground floor and joined them. That's everyone, Parker confirmed. Lead the way. The men led them through the clean, well-lit halls of the compound. All of the doors they passed were closed. Parker guessed that many of them led to sleeping quarters, armories, and supply depots, but there wasn't any way to be sure without sneaking away and seeing for himself. Unfortunately, the Frycors were keeping a close eye on him. Soon they arrived at the main hall. It was filled with a ragtag assortment of mercenary leaders from all across Malafo. Parker recognized Chambers, sister to the infamous Victorias, who was seated at the room's large table looking bored. In the corner stood Tara, one of the few undead mercenaries of whom he was aware, her black hair framing her pale face. She was speaking to a man whose uniform marked him as a representative of the highly successful Catalan Corps. Parker's eyes narrowed when he caught sight of Leviticus. Just why the creepy necromancer had been invited to the meeting was beyond him. In Parker's mind, people like Leviticus gave a bad name to outlaws and murderers. Leviticus noticed him glaring, excused himself from a conversation with a man dressed all in black, and approached the bandit. Mr. Barrows. He smiled, but it was the smile of a jackal, all teeth and no compassion. You stole a necromantic converter from me last month. Parker rubbed his chin and tried to look thoughtful. Hmm. That doesn't ring any bells. Not even sure what a necromantic converter would look like. It's a rectangular device about two feet long and a foot wide with spirit crystals and soul stones stacked into the core mechanisms. It would have looked very old. Leviticus' fingers twitched in annoyance. It cost me a great deal of money to have it shipped south from the northern hills. On its way to the city, someone derailed the train and stole the device. That does sound like the sort of thing we might have done, Parker admitted. We steal quite a bit, though, and I certainly don't remember having seen anything like the machine you're describing. Leviticus sighed. It howls with the eternal torment of the ancient never-born souls trapped within its core. Parker snapped his fingers in recognition. Ah, you are talking about the screaming box. Damnest thing I've ever seen. We were certain the thing was possessed by a ghost or something. Relief flooded Leviticus' body. Then you still have it. He barked out to laugh. Hell no. We shot that thing up as soon as it started calling to us by name. Took the soul stones out to the middle of nowhere and buried them just to keep from ending up haunted by the damn things. Leviticus just stared at him in disbelief. You destroyed it." Parker shrugged. It was a box full of angry vengeful ghosts. What the hell else was I gonna do with it? (music) Tara stared off into nothingness. It seemed to be by her estimation the best way of bringing her current conversation to a conclusion. So, you see, the man was saying, every member of the Catalan Corps gets a vote Every decision is decided democratically, so everything is fair and nobody can complain about their orders. Tara blinked as she mentally returned to the conversation. Democracy, that's a quaint thought. Let me ask you, how many votes did the dead get? The man looked stunned for a second before replying. Well, none, of course. Tara cocked her head to the side and raised an eyebrow, and the man's eyes dropped momentarily to the gaping hole in her chest. Uh, Well, maybe one. You see... Tara had had enough and cut him off mid-sentence. Karina! Come over here, won't you? Looking back at the man, she added, Karina has the most interesting views on government. Tara's wide-eyed friend shuffled over to the group, a framed picture of Von Schill still clutched in her hands. Tara had no idea where the picture had come from, but after a few gentle attempts to tug it out of her hands, Tara just shrugged and let Karina keep it. The man started his explanation over again, as Karina tilted her head at an odd angle and stared at him with wide eyes. It was clear that she was creeping the poor mercenary out, but then again, she was also the only person who had actually bothered to listen to him. After watching for a moment to make certain that Karina wasn't going to toss the man into a temporal rift, Tara excused herself and headed off to talk to Von Schill. She was ready to get to the point. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of Horizon's End.